Broadsheet Radio. and welcome to another episode of Shared History. <laughs> History! <laughs> okay, listeners, listeners, Cass is sitting in her void right now with her white, with just a white wall behind her, nothing to be seen in the frame. And I say that, and out of nowhere, she pulls a full... <laughs> Heckin' trombone. And I, I've i never been more in love with you. <laughs> I, work, I work at a music store. Did you just like, ask if you could abscond with the Well, trombone? kind of, because, like, there's, it's not, like, a cool, like, guitar and, like, record. I mean, we have a, guitars and stuff, but we do a lot of, like, band instruments. And, um trombone is weird and i remember in quarantine joking around be like taylor i want to get a trombone and she's like jesus christ help us you have a million instruments at home play those and then when we opened up like once quarantine started to end it was very light not a whole lot of business coming in so one of the instructors would give me trombone lessons and i got really into it and i would practice like at the store when it was dead but now it's not dead so i like it's not coach to do that anymore so they let me take one home for a little bit oh my god i love that so (laughs) and i like i i bought like because the fifth graders are all starting band this year and i'm the lesson coordinator so i'm setting all that up so i know like what books i need to use so i am literally like following along with yeah i i got the book I'm going through it and doing little exercises. I can do a B flat scale, y'all. I'm learning how to read music finally because I didn't you don't do know that. how to read music. Oh, I know the notes on the staff, but if if I'm gonna sit like and play the piano and read music, it's like C. Twenty minutes later, okay, and then this note attached to that chord. So. Well, My and if you're reading trombone music, that's where I fall off is that I haven't had to read bass clef it's for bass forever. Clef. Yes. Because every so instrument I played was in trouble. Yeah. And the despite in- how low cast in my voices are, we both sing still in trouble clef. <laughs> the instructor is this like 60-year-old woman. She's kind of one of those curmudgeon-y band teachers. No, you're not doing it. Right? Like I hear yelling in the in the lessons and she's my best friend. And she's giving me lessons. So, like, I I played piano, viola, trumpet. I did all of it by ear and muscle memory. So I never re- read music. And when I'm starting to just kind of do muscle memory and kind of figuring out on the fly, she's like, you're not reading. No. She'll oh yell God. at me. And I love it so much. Cass, um, is, Cass, you're just living your best life right now. I'm so life. excited that... I you got just a pulled puppy. a trombone out of nowhere. I got a trombone. I was like, I'm so excited to blow Natalie's mind, literally and figuratively. The fact that you didn't give anything away and like didn't even do like an "I'm so excited for my tagline" bit to like there was no you built up zero suspense and then killed me. I said, I'm so excited before we started recording, and Natalie thought it was about my topic, which I'm very excited about. Cass is very disinterested in her topic. Uh, <laughs> only only showed up today for the trombone. Um, so I actually didn't bring a topic, and I'm going to play fifth grade trombone solos for you. <laughs> Strap in, cross buns. <laughs> Do you know Kumbaya? I will accompany you on the piano. It's the only song I can play by heart. No, but everyone knows that I'm on this trombone kick, so Nessa in print music is like, Cass, I found a hundred songs you need to learn book that's 75% off, and it's got Jurassic Park in it, and I'm like, oh my god. I just like the idea of a trombone kick. 
<laughs> yeah, who the fuck? And I, like, I literally have played all of the instruments. I don't want to pick back up, you know, violin. I don't want to, oh, I used to play trumpet. Let's jump on that. No. Completely random instrument. Different music. Completely different. Yeah, different music in a different clef and also completely different mechanic of playing oh yeah even just between viola and fucking trumpet dude (laughs) (laughs) also viola was in alto clef and did not know that existed till like a week ago because you never read the music (laughs) they did suzuki method um oh but no i i can play every instrument like band instrument like i know how to get a sound out and i'm really good at just teaching bullshit that i don't know about so when kids would come and be like, no, I don't know what band instrument I want to play. Can I try them all? I could play all of them and teach them how to play it. And teach them how to appropriately make a sound, basically. On how to get a sound out and yeah. hold it, like not play it. So they'd be like, oh, I kind of like, like the saxophone or I'm better at this. And in my mind, I have this like, no one ever wants to play the trombone. I'm going to sell the trombone. I got people excited. And then I just remember like, Kids quit band all the time because they suck. You, it takes a while to get good at it, and to yeah. And, and if you think you suck fun. as a child, trying try trying to pick something back up as an adult. Yeah, it doesn't but matter so, how much you knew as a child, especially yeah. with instruments. If it's been long enough, you're like, I, how do I do anything? Oh my god, I can't play saxophone for more than two seconds without my my jaw hurting because I have no embouchure <laughs> anymore. But you don't get to do the fun stuff as a kid because it takes so long to learn the basics. And then it's just like, well, I thought trumpet was cool, but I'm just playing like dumb, like, you know, big band stuff. So I would every time a kid got a new instrument, I'd be like, check out this jazz artist. And there's this trombone player called Slide Hampton. It's like, check out Slide Hampton, Hampton and check out Melba Liston who was one of the great female trombone players who I did an episode on with the International Sweethearts of Swing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell I'm passionate about band? I love, I'm so... <laughs> That's my discovery for this week. I'm so The trombone. By I created this. it. Uh, um, my discovery for this week is something also very uh, on brand for me. I'm just reading a book that I really like, and I just wanted to tell everybody about a book that I really like. Uh, also, it's precious because I am an asshole and I don't really take book recommendations or rather I take them, but there is only, I will listen to your book recommendations, but unless it was solicited or you're a very specific person, I'm not necessarily going to actually go listen, go read that book. Yeah. Um, my father is one of the only people who I will take a book recommendation from because he does not recommend every book that he is reading to me. Uh, that's a problem with I, like if if you recommend every fucking book to me, I'm like, Ugh, whatever. Well, I feel like a lot of times, like people who don't read a lot, they'll pick up a book and they're like, it wasn't great, but oh, I'm reading this. You should read it. I always want to hear what you're reading. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's different. Like, I always want to be like, what's everybody yeah. reading right now? Yeah. But I love a I love. I, I am a person who will read on an e-reader, but if I really like a book, I will buy a hard copy of it so that I can lend one to a friend. That's uh, the best. Case in point, one of my favorite books right now is in Madison, Wisconsin, with one of our sponsors, uh, Nick Ryan, who is the founder of Herbiary, because they were visiting me, and I was and we were talking about sci-fi books, and I told them about this, about uh, A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which is one of my favorite books that I've read recently. Insert herbiary ad here. <laughs> yeah, right? Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. But we're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. Uh, and so I sent them home with my copy 
and then was like, this is also a way to make you come visit me again because I will or make us see each other again so that I can give you the sequel. <laughs> it's a series and I own them all. I own That's you it. now. Um, <laughs> That's how Natalie tricks people into visiting her. Mm-hmm. I have a book. I have a book for you. Uh, but I am reading a book recommended by a friend of both of ours, Cass, Rob Grabowski. Uh, and I a think treasure. Tara Egan who was on our finale last season also has read it because she seemed jazzed that I was reading it. It's called the Gollum and the Ginny. And it is, I'm just, I had to wait a very long time for it to come in on my hold at the library. Yeah. And I got to say worth it. Yeah. Enjoying it immensely. Uh, There's a lot of like, it's a, it's turn of the century New York. So there's a lot of, or as my sister puts it, it's gangs of New York, New York. (laughs) Um, And the book predominantly takes place in like the, in like the Jewish community in New York, and then also the uh, uh, Syrian community in in New York, um, because the Gollum lives in one community and the Ginny lives in the other. Is that Ginny like Genie? Genie and Gollum is so they're mythical creatures from both cultures. Yeah, that sounds um, amazing. It's. I'm just very much enjoying it, and it's like a weird change of pace compared to like what I've been reading a lot of this year. I had been reading Wuthering Heights again, and then the book came in from the library, and I've been waiting so long that I was like, Bronte, you can sit in this corner for a minute. I know you. You're you're familiar. Um, Also, I want to let our listeners know that if they hear us um, making lots of congested sounds. So Cass got – there's a really bad cold going around that's not COVID. I want everyone to know because as soon as I sniffle, which has been for two weeks now, everyone's like, there's a really bad cold going around. And what's funny is that uh, I'm accusing Cass of giving me this cold, even though we have not seen each other in person for months. (laughs) Because last time we were recording, she had the cold and then now I have the cold. And so now we both have the cold. So and and a bunch of Natalie's friends in different parts of the country have the cold. So we have decided that Natalie uh, has contracted said cold via sympathy because she's such a good person. It's a sympathy cold. I'm such a good, real good person. <laughs> um, so now, now you know if you hear us sniffling. Uh, apologies for nose sounds in advance. Um, Natalie. Yeah. I think I think it's me. I think I'm up. Do it. Lay it I on me. I think I'm ready to talk about history. I, my trombone is still in sight, and I'm genuinely looking over at it like, oh, my God, I just want to play it. But Resist. I'm I'm now focused on history. I'm so excited about my topic because it's come up in the news recently. You're very good at pulling things that happen to also be, like, timely and relevant, and I'm very good at being like, oh, look at this thing this pope did. <laughs> This one orgy that happened 200 years ago, um, which I love a centuries-old orgy. Don't get me wrong. I love a dusty old orgy. (laughs) This Um, isn't episode 69 anymore. We will never have another episode 69 unless we get to 169. I cannot wait till 169. Oh my gosh. 169s. Hello! But... Very excited about this topic because it's something I was very interested in as a kid, at least the the, the Bermuda Triangle. Are you kidding me? Quicksand. How did you know? <laughs> because kids are really into the Bermuda Triangle and quicksand. No, that's not it. Um, although I did think I would encounter a lot more quicksand in my life as an adult than I have. I still think about how I would escape quicksand, even though I know that it is clearly not a prevalent issue in my life. As a kid, I was like, I'm going to walk in a quicksand and die. And if I if I survive, it's going to happen again. Like quicksand is going to be a real issue in my life. Quicksand, um, surviving in the quicksand mirages Mm. and the Bermuda Triangle were things that I thought were going to be more (laughs) relevant. And also, honestly, the Iditarod race. <laughs> <laughs> Which is relevant because you did because a, I, you did because I love on it. it. Um, when am I? Where am I? <laughs> I, I? Yeah, just get into it, Cass. When am I? 
Um, I mean, like, we'll say 1890-ish, but also, like, like, first century CE. Okay. I'm talking about the Benin bronzes of the kingdom of Benin. I feel like I've seen this come up in the news recently. I think it's somebody has, like, DM'd us about it before. They may have. So the name Benin uh, may sound familiar to Natalie because the modern-day country of Benin in Western Africa used to be known as a kingdom of Dahomey. That's where my girl's at. Dahomey Warriors! But it's confusing because right next to modern-day Benin is modern-day Nigeria, where Benin City is. So the original Benin Empire is where we now know Nigeria to be. And so I say that this is a topic that really interests me because I loved Greek, Roman Empire, uh, Egypt, this kind of area, old, ancient kind of warrior bullshit. Fucking loved an ancient warrior growing up. And what are the Benin bronzes, Cass? The Benin bronzes are thousands of bronze metal placards uh, that were in the royal palace of the Oba, which was what they called their king. I say we're in first century CE and 1897 because the bronzes were made in the early, early part of their kingdom. And they were stolen at the very, very end of their kingdom, which was in the 1800s. So when we go back to like first century Africa, everyone has this idea of like desert, nothing's there. These kind of primitive kingdoms and tribes. The Benin Empire was insane. They had what they call uh, the walls of Benin, which were these natural uh, earth structures that essentially were this insane fortress. If you Google uh, Walls of Benin, it looks like a maze, like a labyrinth that they built and they protected the city. And so, and it was also, it's also in the middle of the rainforest. Yes, kids, Africa has rainforests. Learn more about geography. Go back to our geography episode, which is, yes, has already come out. So it was in the middle of the rainforest. They had coverage of all these trees. They had this insane, like, huge structure. It was it was made of earth, but it was also, like, built walls. And it was the largest walled structure in the world at the time. Longer or larger than the Great Wall, which now the Great Wall is longer, I believe. But at the time they were going on, they were like, Great Wall ain't got nothing on me. Not so Great Wall. Not such a great wall now. Um, but they were uh, like a very advanced uh, kingdom. They had amazing uh, art. They had an intimidating army. They were very advanced uh, and they remained a kingdom for a very long time. An empire for a very long time. So cut to 1890s. British colonialism happens, but Benin was someone that the British kept losing to consistently. Their army was God, so fierce. I love that shit. <laughs> Their army was so fierce, but also they were just, they were protected very well. They're like, we can keep our fortress going, y'all. The British were getting pissed that they could not win against these guys. They also had started to kind of like, let's trade with you guys. Lumber, ivory, bronze, like all these rivers. System. Like, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know trade good, but they had everything. So the English started trading with them. And then I think they had, they were, became like a something protectorate. So it's like, we're our own country, but we're going to like kind of join with, Britain, so it's, it's kind I love of when it's British. a protectorate when it feels like it's like we're 
in these situations, it sometimes feels like we're protectorate, not because we want to be part of you at all, but we also are sick of you coming in here and trying to take us over violently. Exactly. It's, it's just a way to avoid a hostile takeover. And it's usually only advantageous to the people who are able to capitalize on the trade and cash them checks. Yeah. And they had this fierce army. Uh, one of the great generals, General Osoro, was a sword bearer to the Oba. And he was one of the fighters that kept just like kicking the British's ass. The, the reason the British ended up sacking the city was they were performing some ritual. They had some ceremony. And then there was a British party of like six Brits. And I think... Somewhere it said like 200 Africans, so I'm assuming they were um, not of the Benin kingdom. They were just, you know, Britons like to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We all know. So they were coming unannounced. They were trying to interrupt the ceremony or something. So they attacked this British party and they killed everybody. And England came back with what they called a punitive expedition. Because you killed six of our guys, we're going to ransack and take your city. There's this great story of... That's not an eye for an eye. That's like a kingdom for an eye. Yeah, exactly. My kingdom for a horse is what that is. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So there's this great story. General Osoro was said to almost have mystical powers. He could not die. It said bullets could not pierce his skin. But he had a achilles kind of weak spot he could never look back in battle always needed to stay alive if he ever looked back uh he would get killed he would lose his focus uh he would not no longer be impenetrable it's a real uh orpheus and eurydice situation yeah and they liken it to lot's wife because at one point he looks back he has a quiver of arrows he is like they say he's becoming a pain of the butts in the British because they can't beat him. But all of a sudden, he doesn't really see anyone in his perifs or around him. He drops his sword and he has his quiver of arrows, which is also like mystical. Like it always finds its target. It's like Princess Leia. But he can't see it. So he looks over his shoulder to grab one of the arrows and he gets killed, which like sucks. But also what a great kind of mythical hero and he is considered a hero in Benin there's a statue of him and when the British came in their expedition uh, they came to siege Benin he has this great quote where he draws his sword and he goes no other person dare pass this road unless the Oba and that's when he was just like fuck off guys you're not getting into my city the punitive expedition ended up they sent thousands of british soldiers and they sacked the city and they took it over and then it just feels like a slight overreaction is all i'm saying oh britain never does that no oh i'm sorry my bad i apologize yeah thank you (laughs) i apologize please don't take all of my stuff (laughs) i would if we were next to each other but we are a state apart but as we know you already took my health (laughs) i took your health and we'll figure out a way to take your books or something not my books but don't burn don't burn my library (laughs) uh in 1897 also they call it the benin expedition punitive expedition or the benin expedition it's like no this was a war party you came to sack a city yeah call it what it is a retaliatory massacre massacre yes uh so after they sacked the city, they plundered and they looted it. They took thousands of these beautiful uh, bronze placards, which were images of the Obas. They showed military history, conquest. Uh, it, it was storytelling. It was their history. They also took ivory tusks. They took figurines, all of this stuff, like almost 3,000 or over 3,000 pieces of Benin art and artifacts, which they just handed out to some of the generals. They're like, hey, you want this? Go sell it. Or like, yo, hey, I just murdered all these people and look at this cool elephant tusk I have to show for it. The rest they brought back to London to sell off. They sold to just private collectors. There's this like obsession around this time of Egyptology, which for most people, um, Africa 
was Egypt. You know, there was not really much understanding of it. They're like, oh, it's from Africa and connects to pyramids and bullshit. So a lot of people wanted these antiquities. They eventually ended up with a lot of private collectors and the British Museum and museums all over the world. I never really thought about it when I was younger of seeing like all of this cool stuff from all over the world at museums. In my mind, it's like we excavated, we were given these to the museum to to show and teach people. No, everything in these museums was stolen and plundered and then kind of used as, let me teach you about my Eurocentric view of this and its history. So why I say it's brought up in the news, the first person who has committed to returning these artifacts was a Scottish uh, museum person. Curator? Curator. There There it is. Scottish curator. Uh, He's the first person to officially commit to, I'm going to return these artifacts. The Berlin Museum has taken them out of their collection, as well as the African Museum of Art in the United States. They're taking them out of their collection. They're saying to show them is harmful, and they're kind of in the process of getting it back to Nigeria. And it's, it's huge controversy because people are now starting to talk more openly about the fact that most of the stuff you see in museums was stolen from these countries. Yeah. And they now don't have their history. They don't have their art. So there's this huge push and a lot of pressure being put on um, the Smithsonian, London Museum, Berlin Museum to return these bronzes, which is then setting in motion uh, like, hey, what else did we steal? Yeah. Bring it back. Yeah, because there, there was a whole... Um, and it kind of comes and goes in waves, I feel like. I don't know if it all happened at one specific time, but there was like a whole campaign with obviously like there was a lot of stuff in German museums still held over from stealing things from the homes of Jews that were being rounded up. Gold dang Nazi stuff. Yeah. And so like these the Nazis heck and loved that shit. Um, another good book. Uh, I didn't see the movie, but Monuments Men, the book, uh, very good. Yeah. Um, it is a nonfiction book, more or less, so probably very different than the movie. But uh, this just makes me think of a personal favorite meme. I love boiling everything down. Here's this, here's this poignant, relevant story from history and how it's affecting how we're exploring the world today. Here's a meme I found. <laughs> It's the Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny meme, and it just says, I wish all British museums a very give that shit back. <laughs> yes. It's a personal favorite. I don't think these particular artifacts, like, you know, started the conversation. It has been a conversation recently for a while now. Monuments Men um, brought up that kind of idea but people felt like heroic about it because like oh yeah we're taking it from the nazis the yeah nazis are the bad guys it, it still didn't require anyone to acknowledge that everything in their like favorite european and american museums were plundered and were the spoils of colonization and and uh genocide yeah. They're like, no, no, we're going to only point one genocide fi- genocide and theft finger, and we're only going to point it at the Nazis. It's so funny that, like, the Nazis are the go-to bad guy. They are murderers. They are, you know, I mean, they're, they're really bad people, but... But Germany also, like, it's... I don't want to liken it to this, but this is what just popped in my head. You know how every single time a celebrity basically gets, like caught with their pants down and needs to make a formal apology and then people criticize the apology and are like they didn't really mean that statement where they're apologizing for this horrible thing that they've done or this pattern of behavior yeah uh and they're like what what would they have to say for you to actually believe their apology and i'm like first of all there have been some white male comedians uh who have had more earnest and sincere and believable apologies. Yeah. Uh, it and exists. actions to back it up. Yes. That's the important uh, part. 
secondly, um, let's look to Germany. Like the Germans, Germany, I feel like its history since World War II has largely been taking responsibility for nurturing that spark that spread that fire that was that like that was that horrible horrible time in history they teach it in german schools they, yeah, it they teach part it, of the they culture teach it. now the power of apology and of action to make sure this never happens again like yeah. nie wieder means never again and that is not just a jewish german mantra that is a german mantra it doesn't forgive what nazis do but it shows the power of action following an apology it's also show like that is very much like nie wieder is very like never again takes onus and responsibility and mm. like makes it something that you are now in control of and that yeah. you and your ancestors were were in were involved in versus mm -hmm. uh and i'm just making a lot of parallels that somebody's gonna yell at me on the internet for but i don't care uh we in america about 9 11 say never forget we don't say never again about the war that followed the like massacres that followed that we more or less used 9 11 as an excuse for mm -hmm. We say never forget. Never forget the thing that you did to me versus remember what you like. Never again, I feel like is more poignant. It's it encapsulates never forget. Like, I'm not going to forget this thing. But like, I am also not for for the non-Jewish community or the community like the, for the communities that weren't like affected or were oppressed in that time. It also speaks to their journey and of like never again will we allow this to happen in our home. And, and going back to kind of Nazis versus colonialism, colonialism was extermination. It yeah. was everything the Nazis were trying to do and did. We just got mad because they were, because it was more recent history and they were doing yeah. it to their neighbors and yeah. people who looked like us. It, it's astounding. And so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, throwing it over to you, Natalie. You gave me a great uh jumping off point though because uh when am i world war ii oh there it is uh where am i uh mostly france a little bit of england so i want to start by saying that i could do i feel like we could do an entire season where we only talked about spies spies and assassins have always intrigued me i have a pin in my car that i used to have on my purse like all through high school that just says who killed jfk it's like an old vintage pin <laughs> I, I blame my I blame my uh, my fascination with assassins on uh, Stephen Sondheim. To be honest, uh, I was about to say, is that do you like that music? I know someone who that's their favorite Sondheim musical. I was like, you're wrong, but also I don't like Sondheim, so that's well, we, you're we won't wrong. get into that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> actually, let's get into it. I'm pretty sure everyone knows that my ragging on Stephen Sondheim is all in good fun. But I was so devastated when I heard that he passed away that I felt compelled to throw this disclaimer in here. I love Stephen Sondheim. He is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time. So many of his musicals and songs resonate and I cherish to this day. Just remember, people make mistakes. Holding to their own. Thinking they're alone. Just remember... Someone is on your side. No one is alone. Now, back to the episode. It's just such a weird one to have be your favorite. Well, I've never seen it produced because it doesn't get made that No popular. one has. And But it has, like, beautiful songs in it. Like, Unworthy yeah. of Your Love is, like, a Sondheim, like, mainstay. Like, that's a solid song. Plus, who doesn't like some just patterns, patter songs, bopping around, talking about assassins? You know, I love a pattern, patter song sparsely used. All right. Well, that explains why you do not like the work of Stephen Sondheim as a whole. You said once you're like, I'm surprised you don't like Sondheim because like, you love a pattern so patter song. I was like, I want one. Yeah. Brief. I love a patter song at an improvised musical more than most things because it is it is a very good way 
it is a very good storytelling device in the construct of an improvised musical to like get a lot out there when someone can do it well yes oh i also you know what you know what i love more than most things and i and sondheim does these a lot too i love a fugue i love a fugue going back to music improv i hate conversations in song okay okay like what are you doing today i think i'm going to oh yeah because that just feels very like i'm singing because this i'm supposed to but i don't regardless this isn't about musical improv not about musical improv Uh, this is about tell me about world war ii and spies the spy that i brought for us today because i'm sure i will cover more spies in the future i pulled because she's she kind of feels like the antithesis to nancy wake who we talk about with Rachel Bublitz in season four. Um, So Nancy Wake, the white mouse. Yeah. Can I guess? Please guess. Is it the Black Pearl? It is not. It is not. Oh, Josephine Baker, also known as the Black Pearl, was her. um, Yeah. Oh, like monikers. White mouse, Black Pearl. I love me some some code names and a moniker. So I'm here to talk about the antithesis to uh, to your white mouse, the cat, la chat. Natalie, there comes a time in every episode where I need to talk to you about Iowa. Wait, is this a new segment? No, it's an ad for our sponsor, Raygun, who I love for being a wonderful business and for providing me with a regular excuse to bring up Iowa. As if you needed one. <laughs> right. Raygun is the greatest store in the universe, hands down. They're headquartered in the greatest state in the universe. Okay, okay. They also have other locations, including one in the best city in the universe, in Chicago. True. I guess you could say Raygun brings us together. Raygun kind of brings everyone together. True again. From home goods and paper products to their signature apparel, Raygun is all about good vibes, great laughs, and kind of just not being a shitty person. Yup. And they regularly collaborate with charities and special causes on special runs of products. And 15 to 30% of their net profits go to a variety of nonprofit organizations every year. And they sponsor this really dope history podcast I love. Right? So don't be a shitty person. Check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code SHARIALATER to save on your next order. Matilda Carr, uh, she was known as the cat. Well, she was known by a lot of things. We'll get into that. But La Chatte is a particularly apt moniker for her. There's an article that I read. One of my sources is on uh, thehistorypress.co. And the writer breaks down uh, Carr's similarities to her feline nickname sake. Uh, and basically says, like, independent, plays to her own rules, does what she pleases when she wants to, has Knocks no royal off tables. Yeah, not constantly knocking glasses of water off the table. <laughs> has no loyalty to anyone but herself. And female cats are particularly competitive against other females. Both want to be the boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only have one lady cat and only we only have one female animal in our house, other than me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we always we always joke that uh, that Marie's trepidation about me when I first entered the picture was because I was unseating her as the lady of the house. Who's this bitch? <laughs> who does who does bitch? And now she's like, oh, you got you got hands in a warm lap. You're okay. <laughs> I'll allow it. Uh, but it took like five years for that cat to really warm up to me. <laughs> but yeah, like. Both want to be the boss. So Car- Car's other moniker was Victoire. She had two code names because she was a double agent. <gasps> burr, burr, burr. So before. Sacre bleu, sacre de. Yeah. Yeah. French. French. I speak French. Uh, before the war, her life is like pretty boring, which feels mean to say. Uh, but it did kind of feel like she was like kind of wandering around like aimlessly. And it's, it's easy to be like life before this incredibly like high stakes 
monumental world event that you participated in uh, was boring. It's like, yeah, I'm sure in retrospect, everyone who was alive during the world, during either world war was like, wow, a couple of years ago, things were real dull around here. <laughs> um, but she attended university at, uh, at the Sorbonne. She got a law degree. She became a teacher. She got married to another teacher. She moved with him to Algeria. Uh, pre-war, pretty average life. Um, but after six years and right on the eve of World War II, she divorces her teacher hubs and she returns to France. It's 1939. The French are trying to hold back the Germans. And Carr is serving with the French Army's nurse corps, but is evacuated in 1940 when the Germans win uh, and kind of take the city to Toulouse. Here, she meets Captain Robin Garby Czerniawski. He's Polish military intelligence. His code name is Valentin. Uh, he stays in France illegally using the papers of a Frenchman killed in the fighting. And he is tasked with spying on the Germans on behalf of the Polish. He was recruited by like the overall chief of Polish intelligence in France. Um, and this and this man is basically responsible for kind of accidentally into creation uh, an entire anti-German spy operation. Just because he was, this guy was like, um, while you're over there, can you do <laughs> these things? So, uh, Garby Chernyovsky, aka Valentin, quickly organizes a very effective network of agents that calls itself the Interali. That brings us to Matilda. Because Valentin and Matilda become lovers and he recruits <laughs> her. Not necessarily in that order. Details are fuzzy. <laughs> Which came first, the recruitment or the sexy times? So her official code name is Victoire because all headquarters sections staff had V initial nicknames. The network's naming system as a whole were Christian names grouped by letters of the alphabet. So like everyone at their headquarters had V names. Um, Natalie, quick, give mm -hmm. me three V names other than Victoire and Valentine. Oh, V's hard. V is hard. There must have been a small staff. <laughs> uh, I don't know, like a Violet. Uh, it's also Christian names, so I'm like, yeah. are any of these Christian names? Uh, Our X department has gone defunct. Yeah, yeah. Z hasn't <laughs> even opened. Nobody wants it. Uh, Veronica, Vanessa, Violet. There uh, it is. Vince. I'm sure Vincent was one, because that is a, yep. for sure a Christian name. The... Uh, <laughs> Um, but her colleagues give her this added nickname of Le Chat. This becomes fuzzy because it says that, like, her colleagues give her the added nickname, but then it also says that the Germans give her this this nickname of Le Chat. So, I don't know. We're going to tell it both ways. So, she's part of the French resistance against the Germans. Great. Noble cause. She's crushing it. She's so sneaky. She's so predatory. She's slinking around. She basically Catwoman. She's Selena Kyle in this. Uh, at maximum strength, they had roughly 120 agents strategically located in 14 designated districts of German-controlled France. So Is that like 120 Vs? No, no, no. I, I think... I'm still on this V thing. I know. I think that maybe <laughs> those all have different... Maybe that is 120 Vs. In which case, the French and the Polish knew more V names than we do. Um, Listeners, if you can think of any V names, uh, like Vladimir, maybe. I don't uh, know if Vladimir is a Christian name, though. Yeah. You guys, send us what you think, because this, uh, this is bothering me now. I feel like maybe it's in each of these 14 districts, there's a different letter. Okay. Maybe these are different headquarters. I don't, I do not know. I'm not taking away the correct part of this story. It's not about the V. I mean, <laughs> hey, but is it? it? Is it? Uh, not? So, so then, uh, her, she, and other agents, including Valentine, they're uh, arrested by the. I, I did not look up this German word, and I never took German. Abwehr, A B W E H R. They're the German military intelligence. Abwehr. Okay, Abwehr. Words. What we're going with? Uh, don't add us. Rigorous interrogation and torture ensues uh, at the hands of. Uh, Sergio Hugh, Sergeant Hugo Bleicher. Um, just makes me think of uh, <laughs> Can't not think of Young Frankenstein. Um, 
After hours of interrogation, death threats, and an offer of financial reward, it is said that Matilda agrees to turn double agent. She coughs up the names and locations of all the other Entreali number members that she knows. One of my sources indicates that they brutally tortured Valentine with no success before switching gears and folk and concentrating on Matilda um, mm-hmm. and taking and that they didn't really beat her. They took a more psychological uh, offense against her, like moving her from a bleak prison cell to a five star hotel room in a hotel that happened to also be their uh, Abwehr headquarters, gave her an amazing meal and essentially like buttered her up and made her feel like she could be safe and then informed her that she could only be safe from torture and probable death as she turned. So also probably promised that he would protect any of her colleagues that she surrendered to him from execution. Yeah. So it's like, if you give us their name, they're safe. If you don't give us their name and we find them out ourselves, like they, we going to execute them. I don't know that I believe them. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Do you think that you would believe German, area, German military intelligence? We promise we won't kill them. If we find them with help, we won't kill them. We'll just be like, no, no, no. <laughs> bad, bad French resistance. So in her memoirs at the end of her life, she does admit that within hours of being interrogated, uh, she would commit quote in her words the greatest act of cowardice in my life a purely animal cowardice this is i'm gonna put an asterisk next this this is allegedly allegedly in addition to agreeing to help the germans she also becomes bleicher's mistress Mm -hmm. however we we a spy we do a spy shit like that one could be a survival move to be like Mm -hmm. yes also now i'm gonna stay closer to you so that you definitely don't murder me Mm -hmm. um and to, yeah, spy shit. Uh, also, maybe a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome. Also, like, maybe didn't even happen because history. She leads the Germans to the homes of these agents and their meeting places. She arranges meets with other agents to help the Germans find and identify them. She possibly gives them the locations of the networks for radio transmitters. Um, and then she provides them. If she does that, she provided them also with, like, the necessary codes, transmission schedules. So she's, like giving away the whole thing up everything yeah. yeah um so that the Brit- so that the germans could continue to transmit to the british and kind of string them along um all the while she's still running around with her french resistance network with the Entrali. she's eventually found out by one of their ranks pierre de vomcourt who also may have been her lover. I'm getting lost in the lovers. It just seems like it's a woman in a wartime and there's a lot of men around and everyone. It's the same as like with Nancy Wake that they were like, she did all of these things and she slept with all of these people. And it's like, but no, you're just, there's no evidence to that. Yeah. Also, bitch is going to sleep around too. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pierre tricks her by asking her to bring some forged identity documents, but then her forgeries are like, perfect complete with authentic german stamps so they're like where did you get this good of a german stamp is it because you're running around with the germans too he confronts her she breaks down she confesses but pierre does not kill her he does not warn the others and he doesn't and he himself does not run instead he persuades matilda to once more in earnest work for the allies a triple agent! We a triple agent! Woo! So she goes back to her, like, German controller slash potential lover, tells Bleicher that uh, Pierre is planning to leave for England for an important meeting with the British intelligence and that he's asked her to come with. And so Bleicher is like, I'm going to get permission to allow you to go with him and to allow, basically to let them get out of France without knowing that they were being allowed out of France. So British intelligence uh, intercept them once they get out of France, debrief them. She tells the Brits everything, and uh, they imprison her for the rest of World War II for, you know, safety. Yeah. She's like, but I came clean, but also I guess I deserve this. I also came clean to the Germans. She likes yeah. to come clean. She's a clean lady. Yeah, she's just she just likes to confess. Um, she just wants to help everyone. She's too helpful for her own good. That's the real, that's the moral of the story. 
Um, she's tried in January. She's finally actually like tried for a crime in nineteen in January nineteen forty nine after the war. She's sentenced to death, but appeals it and gets life imprisonment instead. And basically, it worked out that like speaking of her confessing to everything and just like coming clean. She never tried to dispute her treason. She yeah. did try to rationalize it, but she never mm-hmm. tried, she never was like, I didn't do those things. Yeah. Um, and her defense attorney said, quote, consider that this woman was faced with the choice of life or death. Do not forget that from the beginning of the resistance, she was a heroine. Uh, would you put to death those who at the beginning sowed the seed of faith and later overestimated their own strength? So basically, like, don't don't forget all the good that she did. Yeah. She, but like, but also don't forget that she's still human. Yeah. Um, and she, and basically, trying to be like hubris was her, was her downfall, and yeah. you know the desire to not be murdered by Germans. Yeah. Um, because they were really good at that. Yeah. All during the trial, she doesn't really deny anything. Um, it wasn't until later she published her own memoirs later in life and she denies many claims that had been made about her, mm. which is why I'm going to give her the credit of being like, just because she turns double agent and triple agent doesn't mean that she's sleeping with fucking every guy who turns her Yeah. Uh, before or after. There's a, 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 a she, she passed away in 2007 or eight, I think mm. 2007. Um, and a, a book about her came out in 2018. That's uh, by David Tremaine and it's called double agent Victoire, Matilda Carr and the Interale network. And in that book, the author is specifically examining like the complexity of her and also the, a theory slash potential fact slash theory uh, that she wasn't the only one involved in this betrayal mm-hmm. because it's and there's an MI5 file that seems to clearly implicate another agent, um, but everything seemed to have blowed back on Matilda. A the agent? Uh, I only know the person, <laughs> like their, their non-code name, which is yeah. Krauss. So, uh, but spies! Spies! A double, a triple agent. A triple agent. That's why it's like, she's the cat. She's the opposite of of Nancy Wake, who is the white mouse. Also, in, you know, going back to that apology thing, just, I fucked up. Yeah. And I'm not making excuses. And I, again, don't want to die, but I'll, I'll take life in prison. Yeah. If we could not kill me, I've done a very good job of not getting myself killed. That's, yeah. If there's one thing I've been exceptional, yes, <laughs> it's been not getting myself killed every time I've gotten caught. This time I handed myself over, so I'd really not like to get myself yes. killed. And it's it's easy to deny, even in a situation where it's like, we know you did this. No, no, I didn't. Yeah. Or turn it back on someone else. But she was very much just like, I did these things. Yeah. Yeah. I am not proud of it. It's the biggest act of cowardice of my life. I tried to stay alive. I fucked up. Yeah. But I, I wound up on the right side of history again. I came back. Do I get points? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, we don't know how much, like, if she, we don't know if she was, like, given everything to the Germans while she was still working with, like, or yeah. if she was, like, very being selective. Yeah. About what she. Yeah. It's shitty How she to could be... string them along. Yeah, it's shitty to be hanging out with your friends, meanwhile, giving them all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like to think that she was, because it would make, it makes for good um, television. Yes. Uh, the, the selectivity and mm-hmm. what is being, what is being shared. You got to give the Germans enough so that they don't get suspicious that you've, yeah, that you've well, turned back. And I mean, <sighs> or are you just very fickle and you're just like. I'm on your team now. Yeah. Here's everything. Oh, I got caught. I'm on your team now. Yeah. Here's everything. It's so easy for people removed to be like, oh, how dare you? Most people in a situation of torture or imminent torture are going to fess up. Yeah. You know, it's it's unfortunately the way it is. And that's why they call it torture. Yeah. Turns out 
And it's like the psycho, like thinking about the psychological torture versus like that they basically like buttered her up instead yeah. of they're like this. She's gonna be more resistant if we're if we're beating her. We're not gonna get what we want. But if we mm-hmm. give her good things and then basically are like, oh BS, they're like PS, uh, we gonna we gonna yeah. do you a big murder. Yeah. Um, if I were to cast Matilda, I've been trying to think of this. And I think it might just be because I love her and she, and it's she's in a French movie. But I would want to go with Audrey T- uh, Tautou, who played yes. Amelie, or yes. Mar- uh, Marianne Cotillard. Because Marianne Cotillard is one of the greatest actresses of our generation. Yeah. I will stand by that. I think that the, like, uh, presented kind of meekness of Audrey would work. Like, she mm-hmm. seems like she could be... She doesn't seem like she could be calculated because she looks so innocent, but she also, yeah. like, seems like she could be very, like, um, very cat-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I say we are uh, casting for the the bronzes of Benin. Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to cast the bronze as um, just bronze. We'll get, we'll get bronze to play the bronze. Uh... This is an obvious choice, and I think he might be a little too old at this point, but Jaiman Hansu would be an amazing General Osoro. Am I biased because Gladiator's my favorite movie? Yes. Also, he is just really fucking good. I love him. I'm going to go watch Gladiator right now. <laughs> that cancel the rest of my day. i got to go watch <laughs> Gladiator. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of who I would uh, cast as as any of of her alleged uh, Matilda's alleged lovers. I don't know why, but I really want to cast uh Aiden Quinn <laughs> as uh which I uh, will old blue eyes. Old blue eyes Ooh. Quinn um, blue. as one of her uh, maybe as maybe as Bleicher, maybe as the German. I was initially thinking Aiden Quinn as one of the as the Valentine or uh Devomcor, but but also, I, I mean, and it, it's it's dependent upon what the director chooses as far as accents. I think maybe he could do a better German accent than French. Yeah. Not no, doubting you know Aiden, but... Fair. Sorry, Aiden. Um, I figured out who I want to cast as, uh, I think, Valentine. Uh, Ido Goldberg. Yeah. From Snowpiercer and Peaky Blinders and uh, Secret Diary of a London Call Girl. Okay, who I want to cast as the French guy, it's Matthias Schoenart, because I love him. Well, there's two French guys, so he can take one and Ido can take the other, and then we can cool. we can have Aiden Quinn as our German. Yeah, I want uh uh, who's the crazy guy from uh, Inglorious Bastards? Christoph Waltz. I want him to play any German character ever. All Germans <laughs> forever are Christoph Waltz. Oh, oh, okay. I love this um, casting thing, but man, I could spend this. I like throwing it in, but man, I could spend the whole episode on just casting. Just on casting. Yeah. We're starting a side business. We're, uh, we are officially uh, casting directors. Maybe, maybe we'll do a bonus feature where you guys give us historical characters and we'll cast them. We'll do it. We'll do anything. <laughs> oh we would do anything for your love darling darling that's a throwback to assassins uh <laughs> you can send us those recommendations of uh of historical figures you want us to cast or or you know what uh actors and performers that you want us to find a historical figure role for Ooh, I'll, take, I'll, good... I'll go reverse on it mm-hmm. or a lot any questions or corrections about our episode so far just talk Um, to us just please we're lonely you can send those to us via dm on the instagram and the twitters at shared pod or you can email them to us shared history podcast at gmail.com if you're i don't know self-conscious about your message um although no one would see your dms except for us so believe in yourself you can find all of this information on all the links in our bios and the links in the doobly doos Thank you guys so much for going on this journey with us. It was such a journey. I had a great time. I kept my hands and my feet, but not my imagination, inside the history machine at all times. <laughs>
until next time. Broadsheet Radio.